if you could... Ah, yeah, go ahead, thank you. Uh, if you could have your Bibles open, it would be very helpful today. Oh, if you have a church Bible, one of the blue ones, it's on page 929. Um, we're going to really look at the first reading of Mark 2, uh, to the chapter 3, verse 6. But we're going to kind of jump around Mark's gospel because this touches on a lot of themes within this great gospel of God. Um, it is great to be here with you all. I'm privileged to get to speak at Mercy Hill. And I thank everyone for being so hospitable to me, especially Perry and Laura. Uh, they've been great. And of course, Scott. Um, as far as I understand it, in Congress is where most of your public debate happens in Scotland, it's uh, Holyrood, in uh, England it's Westminster, and in these areas of and arenas of debate, people use interesting language, don't they? Sometimes they'll say stuff like, oh, that's a straw man argument. I mean, I was younger and uh, far more literal. I used to look around the room and think, where's the scarecrow in this room? There is no straw man in this room. Um, but it's just an idiom, it's a metaphor to talk about. So we're putting up something that's false or weak. It could just be pulled down. Another, another famous statement that's used in the area of debate is that's a red herring argument. And for years, I hadn't a clue. And this is obviously before Googling, like the new generation just Google everything. But what the real saying, the fuller saying is drawing a red herring across the path. And what it means is to divert someone's attention away from the road they're journeying on. So you look at the red heading and you go off the path. And some of your politicians use this to deadly effect. Some of our own in Scotland do too. And what it means is they end up debating some side issue, something that's not really important, rather going down the main track. Do you know what I mean? So you end up arguing about a secondary point, and then you realize, why am I talking about that? That's pointless. And in schemes in Scotland, many people have read ahead in arguments when it comes to Jesus. Uh, they have all these wee minor points that they want to debate, rather than the fundamental question, who is Jesus? And I'm sure here in um, Shepherdsville, in Edinburgh, where I used to be a minister, in the Merkinch, everyone has these red herring arguments that cloud their thinking. And the key question that always cuts right to the core is asking them, who is Jesus to you? What do you think of Jesus? Trying to get them to see the path clearly again. So in the Merkinch, our launch team have been going through a gospel. I know uh, from speaking to Scott, you have been going through Luke's gospel. And every gospel has distinct themes, things that the authors want to drive home about Jesus. And for us in the Merkinch, we've been going through Mark's gospel because it's short, it's snappy, it's straight to the point. Mark just wants you to get to know who Jesus is, that this is God incarnate. This is Emmanuel with us that we would rest and trust in him. But Mark also has uh, themes within his gospel. The main one is the identity of Jesus. The second one is the kingdom of God. What is that? Where did it come from? What does it look like? And the third one is discipleship, the importance 
of discipleship in the Christian life. And throughout Mark's gospel, again and again and again, one group come up and challenge these key themes publicly, and they're called the Pharisees. The Pharisees in their day were like the zealous elites in their community. They were like the upper class politicians, and they had several issues with Jesus that struck at the heart of these themes. For one, Jesus' disciples were mainly working class guys. Uh, I think you would call them blue collar lads. They weren't that important in the grand scheme, so the Pharisees thought. Or they came from jobs that people would think, oh, that's a bit distasteful. That's, that's a bad job you have. Like Levi in Mark 2, 13 to 17, he was a tax collector. They were kind of like scum, the outcast of their own community. But these were the guys that Jesus gathered together, and the Pharisees hated them because pedigree was everything. They wanted furrow-bred Jewish men from a, a good class of man. Secondly, the Pharisees had the issue with Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand and it's going to go out to all nations. So for a Pharisee, this church would be awful. My church in the Merkinch would be awful. They wanted the, the kingdom of God just in Jerusalem, just by the temple. Thank the Lord that is not true. Inclusion was not a word that they would use. They were all about exclusion. Again, about the elites. And thirdly, they had an issue with this man, Jesus. This poor carpenter from Nazareth, who when he spoke, carried more authority, more power, and more understanding than they could ever have. Who had insight into God that they yearned for and therefore rebelled against. They could never see this uh, nobody being their king. This nobody who would represent them before God. So here we see the Pharisees in Mark's gospel challenges themes again and again at every opportunity. And that's what we have here in Mark 2, 23, 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees come again to challenge Jesus. But in this argument, they use a red herring. You know, again, something that would take your eyes off the main point. The red herring in this passage is the Sabbath. That's what they want you to focus in on. And the real issue here is the heart of the Pharisees. In short, this passage teaches us that these men were graceless men faced with a grace-filled uh, Savior. And after reading our passage this morning, if you think to yourself, oh, how does this connect with me? You know, I keep the Sabbath, or I haven't walked through a cornfield this morning and picked some heads of grain. Uh, you know, how, what's this got to say to me? Well, this has loads to say to you, because what we have here is a great illustration of salvation, but also a great illustration of God's grace to people, to humanity, to us all. In our reading, we have the law of God which should drive us to the grace of God as his people. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, once said that you must preach the whole law of God so people know what they need to be saved from 
But then you need to preach the gospel and how the law applies to their life today so that we, like the psalmist, may say, Lord, I delight in your law. So this morning, we're just going to look at three short points. We're going to look at the Sabbath. We're just going to lay the table, as it were, like Mark does. We'll look at the Sabbath. Then we'll look at the Pharisees a wee bit, and then we'll look at this really interesting event in chapter 3 with the man with the withered hand. So Mark opens this passage with the Pharisees reacting in horror at the disciples taking a nice stroll with their friend Jesus through a cornfield. And as they passed through on the Sabbath, they accused Jesus and his disciples of being unlawful. So that's important because what they're really saying is, Jesus, you're sinning. That's what they're saying by what you're doing here. And Jesus counters this masterfully by this interesting wee story about King David. And you've got to remember, to the Pharisees, King David is the perfect king. David could do no wrong. So what Jesus is doing is saying, here, David ate of the bread of the presence, which was set apart from God. But God did not hold that against him. He did not sin, just as my guys are not sinning right now. That's the link in these stories. You might think, where did this come from? That is what Jesus is doing. He's challenging them with a character that they idolize, who can do no wrong, and saying, if I'm sinning, he's sinning. Therefore, they can't accuse Jesus of that anymore. But the true concept here is that grace always comes before the law of God. David didn't sin because he was starving. He used his common sense. He ate the bread, fed his men, and moved on. Jesus is not sinning because in Deuteronomy 23, 25, it says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, and you shall not, but you shall not wield a stickle to cut it down. So what that's basically saying is, if you're hungry, if you're passing through, eat. That's not a sin. Be refreshed. But if you go along and you're like, I'm going to harvest that field, then that's sinning. It's quite simple. But what Jesus is saying here is, I'm just letting my lads have, an eat, have some food. They were hungry. We need to keep going. This is not a sin. But the key point for the Sabbath principle, if we were, is that it's about resting in Christ, enjoying Him. That's what the Pharisees were missing. Jesus and His friends were walking through the field, enjoying each other's company, having a chat, talking to one another, enjoying the presence of Jesus. And sometimes we think, you know, Jesus comes to get rid of the law of God, but that's not true. What we have here is Jesus quite clearly in verse 27, if you look down with me, he affirms the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was not, um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Indeed, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus does not say this is done away with. He reinforces it. This is a, something that we should enjoy as Christians. And as I said, a true Sabbath, a true rest is enjoying Christ, meeting with him, reading his word, praying, meeting together. That's the joy of the Sabbath. Uh, so we have 
no right as humans uh, to tamper with the Sabbath. Uh, That's what Jesus is saying here. It was made for us. Indeed, if we look through the whole of Scripture, we we see that the Sabbath is expressed in a number of ways. One, uh, as a commandment, it is the fourth commandment uh, that was instituted by God through Moses at Sinai, that it should be a day that we keep holy and set apart from Him. But if you think, oh, that's where the Sabbath began, you'd be wrong. Because as Christians, we believe in something called a creation ordinance. It's a big word. But really what it means is it was set in the Garden of Eden. So Sinai, way back to Eden, is really where the Sabbath is found. You know, we see in creation that God took a day apart, God, to rest and to delight in what he'd done. God didn't need to rest. He's God. What he's doing is laying out a principle for us to enjoy. How many of us would love just a day to chill out in this world? We live in such a fast-paced, connected world. I used to love, uh, when I was younger, getting an iPhone. You know, I was one of those guys who would always get the new iPhone. You know, I was one of those lads you probably hate. Uh, but now, oh man, it uh, does my head in. Um, like, you know, I get emails, phone calls, text messages, WhatsApps, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Like, my phone is almost constantly vibrating just to get a rest from that, you know. And it's a good principle that God is saying here. He gives it. God gives this principle to us as creator in the Garden of Eden, as God the lawgiver in Sinai. And it's reinforced by Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So we can see it's an important principle for us to apply in our lives. Now in Scotland, where I'm from, you know, we're such a happy-go-lucky race. Um, We used to chain up swing parks on the Sabbath. We used to, anything that was fun, we would kind of try to stop because we're pretty uh, like that as a people. But that's not what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is not to make us like those Christians that are scared to turn on the light in case we sin. The Sabbath is about meeting together as a covenant family, enjoying each other's company, encouraging one another in Christ. Because I have no doubt, I don't know any of you, but I'm sure some of you have had a hard week. I'm sure some of you may be on your last nerve. I'm sure some of you is having relationship problems. We need to gather together, to rest in Christ, to enjoy fellowship together, to mutually encourage one another in Him. That is the Sabbath principle. That's us keeping it holy. It's not about chaining up swing parts or being scared to turn on lights. The the Sabbath is to help you spiritually flourish in Jesus. It's all about grace given to God for you to rest and enjoy Him. But the ugliness of sin is this, that it normally distorts or corrupts the good things of God um, and makes the good things of God a burden. That's the ugliness of, oh, I have to do this. You know, instead of delighting in it, we say, oh, I have to do it because this and that. And 
And there's one group in the Bible who excelled in that, and that is the Pharisees in this passage. They excelled on adding burdens to the good things of God so that we almost lose the blessing in them. And that comes from a heart issue that ultimately the Pharisees were graceless men. Uh, We see, uh, if we look in the New Testament, they almost added law upon law of every commandment of God. And they'd done that especially with the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath became in ancient Israel a day of um, joyless kind of religiosity rather than the sweet rest it ought to be. And this is typical Phariseeism. Phariseeism. Phariseeism is basically when we are saved, we must keep these laws to be justified, to keep like our salvation pure. That's kind of a baseline. So we must keep this law to be right with God. It's basically uh, self-works. You know, that's basically what they're saying. And the problem with that is it sucks all the goodness out of God, out of salvation, replaces it with hollow self-righteousness. And we see that expressed by the Pharisees again and again and again through Mark's gospel. And you'll see it in Luke's gospel as well. As you go through it, just look at many times they speak and their words are so harsh and so cutting. In Mark's gospel, if we were to look at chapter 2, we have this beautiful scene of the paralytic, someone who's paralyzed, being taken by his closest friends, his good pals, and lured in through the ceiling before Jesus. And Jesus remarkably, in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, heals him. And what do the Pharisees say? They say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins uh, but God alone? They're missing the point. You know, most people in that room went away rejoicing. They'd just seen a miracle. A a man who uh, couldn't move is going down the road carrying his mat, but the Pharisee's heart, because they're graceless, is like, who is that man to do that? You see how ugly that is, how full of jealousy that is. Again in chapter 2, we have Levi just come to faith, Uh, Levi, who was a tax collector, who mixed with tax collectors, gathers all his mates around for a meal, um, and the Pharisees witness this, and witness Jesus sitting in the table in verse 16 and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees don't like it when the gospel's pushing out beyond their control, when the kingdom of God is expanding, rather Pharisees love to gossip between one another. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In chapter 7, later on in Mark's gospel, we notice that Jesus' ministry has become almost a celebrity status. So a whole group of Pharisees come up from Jerusalem, which is in the south, to Galilee, which is in the north. And they kind of like encompass Jesus, and that's really to kind of split him off from the population because he's having such an impact. And they judge Jesus and his disciples because the disciples are eating their meal without washing their hands. Now, it was a good idea to wash your hands before eating a meal, but they were saying they're sinning. They're sinning by not doing that. And again, Jesus 
deconstructs the argument with what? Scripture, a story from their own history in Mark 7, verse 6. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of man. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And that's sometimes what we do. We leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the the traditions of men. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were putting their traditions on the same level as God's, when actually the world's apart. Because God speaks to his people through grace and mercy. God's grace is being poured out to you, to me, today. That is a great and encouraging thing. That when we're hurting, we can rest in him. But the real indictment to the Pharisees is these guys should have been leading the people of God. They were the leaders They were the educated men in the Word of God, in the Torah. They were steeped in their history, how God had saved them from Egypt, how the prophets had spoken the Word of God. They should have been people who were shown grace and love to all, but instead it became insular, just about them. And that's why Jesus uses in Mark 7 that word hypocrite. It's a great word. It's a... A metaphorical word, it comes from uh, a Greek plays. That's the history of the word hypocrite, uh, where a Greek play would happen on a stage like this, and the characters would come on, and one character would come on called the hypocrite, and he would wear a mask of another character in the play. So you never see the hypocrite's identity. You just see the mask. That's like the Pharisees. They wore a mask of religion that really was trying to hide their cold, graceless hearts. And friends, we can do that. We can love religion. Religion is very interesting. Uh, Religion gives a sense of self-importance. You know, Christ died for me. You know, religion can bring you into community. Um, Religion can give you mystery, can give you... uh, like a good study of history. But religion doesn't save. Only Jesus can. And that's what the Pharisees were missing. They were missing Jesus and holding to the traditions of man. Did they love God? From our text, probably not. Had they experienced his mercy and grace? Do their lives look like one that has been transformed by encountering Jesus? We would have to say no from the texts we've read and looked at. And that's because the heart of the Pharisee is harsh, unrelenting, proud, crushing, it gossip, it wounds, it can kill, is graceless. We read that the Pharisees actually hated discussing and having a debate with Jesus because every time he struck at the heart of them, he addressed their issue. And this, in this chapter, 
drives them out to make the most unlikely of allies. They go out and meet the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are only mentioned twice in the Gospels here and the end of Mark's Gospel. Now, their first name is Herod. Herod, Herod's name in this Bible is linked with unbelief. Um, Herod's family line, there was three Herods in the Bible, each one done horrendous things uh, that just expressed their unbelief. Uh, Herod the Great was called the fox, sneaky, uh, dealing behind, the, the, the behind closed doors. So this group is like a secular party within government. And then the Pharisees are like the fundamentalist, uh, like religious elites. And when they, these two parties join, really, they are a political party of cynicism, skeptic, skepticism, and opportunism. That's really why they're coming together, get to come together. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, calls this an unholy alliance out to destroy Jesus. Why? Because that great question, who he is. They were threatened by Jesus, both of them, government and the spiritual elite. We see that the heart of the Pharisees and their jealousy and their gracelessness drives them to a group who they would never connect with normally. Their hearts were full, were graceless. But luckily for us, and beautifully here in the text, we have a grace-filled Savior, which we see in our last section today, which is the latter, from chapter 3 to verses 1 to 6. Um, and we need to talk about the Sabbath and the Pharisees, because that's the way Mark frames this passage. But as I said at the start, the heart of this passage is not about the Sabbath. It's not about the Pharisees. It's about Jesus and how beautifully he expresses his grace and this illustration that we have here of salvation. We read in the chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, uh, of this wonderful encounter, don't we, where Jesus walks into the synagogue and he sees a man with a withered hand. Uh, where did this man come from? Um, how did he end up with his disability? The Bible doesn't tell us, but what we can assume from what we know of the Bible, is that this man would be struggling in three areas of his life. He'd be struggling socially, he'd be struggling, struggling economically, and he'd be struggling spiritually. He would be struggling socially because in that time in first century Palestine, uh, people would judge you on how you look. So to be honest, not much has changed <laughs> in the world, uh, how you look, they judged you by. So if you had a deformity by any uh, means, people would look at you and be like, oh, don't really want to hang around with him. So this man would probably be, feel quite isolated, uh, maybe on the outskirts of his community. Um, he'd be struggling with that, as we all would. We all need community. Uh, economically, he'd be struggling. Uh, I was a carpenter before as a, a minister, um, you know, and in Scotland, we get paid for the work we do. Uh, that's what would happen here. And as a joiner, you need both your hands to do jobs well and quickly. This man, if he had lost the use of his hand, he would be struggling. 
There was no such thing as social security in first century Palestine. Once you were down, you were out. Uh, most scholars would say that uh, the loss of a limb in that century would half your lifespan. That's how drastic it is. And spiritually, he'd be struggling because in that time, the Pharisees were teaching that if something like this happened to you, that God was judging you, that it was almost cause and effect. If you sin, God's going to smite you or get you. That was kind of what the Pharisees were talking. In theology, we call it retribution theology. It's, it's not the way God acts, but that's what they were teaching. And we see that that kind of school of thought had bled into the disciples' thought process. We see it expressed in John's gospel, uh, John chapter 9, verse 2, when the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind when they were talking about a blind man. So that was kind of the three things that would be encroaching on this man's self-identity. He's struggling socially, struggling economically, struggling spiritually. Clearly, he'd be wrestling with a view of himself, wouldn't he? Wouldn't we all? Then on one day, this man walks into the synagogue where he is praying, and his life is about to be transformed. I find it quite uh, funny in this passage uh, that when Jesus walks in, if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, everyone notices Jesus. It's almost like the room stops or everyone takes an inhale. Or, you know, like they knew what Jesus was going to do as soon as he saw the man with the withered hand. It was kind of just assumed by everyone. And again, we see the gracelessness of the Pharisees here kind of waiting like a snake recoiled to strike, don't we? They think to themselves, if Jesus heals this man, we've got him this time. That's him broke the Sabbath again. And the, uh, Mark uses a really interesting word in your Bible. He uses the word accuse which is a strong word. It's, it's a legal word. That's, that's where their mind was going. It wasn't just we're going to punish him. It was we're going to lock this man up if he does it. We want Jesus gone, out of here, out of the public arena. The potency of their graceless hearts is awful. It's almost building as we read through this text. Jesus, knowing all these things that are going on in that room, as soon as he enters it, preemptively speaks to the Pharisees and to what they're thinking. Jesus was angry and grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Because why, again, what we said, these guys should have been the spiritual leaders. These guys should have been uh, invested in men like this man with the withered hand. And Jesus looks at this man and says, stretch out your hand. Now, let's pause there for a second because, as we said at the start, Mark's gospel is punchy. Once you get through it, he's rushing you through this passage. But sometimes it's good to pause and reflect on a passage uh, because there's a lot going on here. You know, this man could have legitimately thought to himself, why is Jesus so far away from me? Because he had just entered. The man's across the room. This man would have heard about Jesus and known that in most cases of Jesus' healing, Jesus laid hands on the person to heal them. But yet he's saying, stretch out your hand to me. 
you'd be thinking to himself, is he not going to put hands on me? Is this not how this gig works? Is he going to heal me? He could have thought to himself, stretch out my hand. Can you not see it? Can you not see this thing uh, on my body that I am incapable to move of my own? This thing that brings me pain, isolation, shame, heart, exclusion. He's asking me to stretch that out. But Jesus, by his grace, is calling this man to respond in faith by stretching out the ver- his hand, the very thing he can't do by himself. And this is a beautiful illustration of salvation, isn't it? Because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. One famous theologian said, all a dead man can do is stink. You know, we can't save ourselves. But God, by his grace, is calling you to exercise faith in reaching out for Jesus, to know him, to pursue him. And by his grace, he'll make you bold for him in life. And we, we sometimes, you know, struggle in our Christian faith because like that man in that room, Jesus is afar off, isn't he? We can't see him. We can't touch him. We may even have the questions like this blind man, is he going to hear me? Is he going to heal me? But in this passage, what heals the man is the words of Jesus. What most of you have in your hands is the word of God. How are you healed today? How do you know Jesus? Yes, he's afar off, he's in heaven, but we know him through his word. I know Jesus as well as I know some of my friends. I could talk to you about one of my friends in, uh, in Dundee planting in a scheme in Scotland called Andy Robertson. I could explain to him what, he, what he's like in character. You have never met him. I can do that with Jesus. I can tell you Jesus is good. He is great. He loves sinners and wants to forgive people of their sins. He died for sinners. I can explain who Jesus is because I met him through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He brings Jesus visibly to you in prayer. Though Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is far off. When we draw near to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is closer than a brother. That is the beauty of our triune God. That he heals through his word. And that's what happens here in this passage. And we have a beautiful crescendo, don't we? In verse 5, if you look at um, the man with the withered hand obeys and responds in faith. And as he stretches out this thing that brings him his shame, his hurt, his pain, his isolation, it is restored before his very eyes. Again, such a powerful image of God's transforming power of his grace in our lives. All his fears, insecurities, gone because of the words of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is a guy called Sinclair Ferguson, and he writes about this passage. The Pharisees taught that only if the man's life were in danger 
was healing on the Sabbath permissible, but not otherwise. But observe Jesus' Jesus point. Why would the Sabbath of all days be the one day he refrains from bringing, bringing blessing to this man? That idea is ludicrous. But there is perhaps something yet more profound in what Jesus did. The law concerning the Sabbath permitted this man great joy, but it could not heal him to the joyful condition for which he had been created. The scribes, the Pharisees could not do that. Only Jesus. Jesus can restore us to a joyful relationship with God, to which we were meant to be in. Jesus, by his grace, has called out to each and every one of us today for that experience. So how does this passage uh, impact the way we live? Because at the Merkinch, what we would do each week is we think, how does this passage affect our head, our hearts, and our hands? But intellectually, I think we have to recognize that God's law is a good thing. Sabbath is a good thing that we need to rest in. We need to set that day apart where we study uh, God's Word, where we meet together uh, for our corporate time of worship, where we rest in Christ. How does this passage impact our hearts? Well, simply look at the man with the withered hand. A lot of his fears are our fears, aren't they? What if Jesus doesn't hear me? What if Jesus doesn't respond? Jesus is afar off. But the beauty of this passage is Jesus gives us the grace to respond in faith to him. So that's what we need to do, to respond in faith. How do we live this passage out? Well, it's quite clearly, we, we step away from Phariseeism, don't we? We don't want to be that sort of person that says, you must do this, this, and this, and this, and then you're acceptable to God. No, what we recognize is we're all sinners who rest in Jesus Christ. That is by his work alone that we are justified. So no matter who you meet this week, the worst of the worst, they can still be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what gives me hope to do ministry in my scheme, that even the worst guy there, the guy who's been shooting up heroin since he was 16, the guy